0: From the AutoLine studios, here is your host, John McElroy.
1: I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. The topic today is going to be all about Mazda. Everything and anything to do with Mazda, and that's because our special guest on today's program is Robert Davis, the senior vice president in charge of all operations for Mazda North America. And Robert, great to have you on the show. Oh,
0: Thank you for having me, John. It's good to be here.
1: Also joining us today are Dutch Mandel, the publisher of the Auto Week Media Group. I've got to tell you, Auto Week was the first magazine I ever uh, subscribed to as a kid. I hope you're still subscribing, John. <laughs> yeah, well, <Good>. uh, well <laughs> <laughs> and Todd Lassa, the Detroit Bureau Chief for Automobile Magazine. Great having you back here. Good too, to be here, Todd. John. So let's talk Mazda. Robert, Mazda is a bit of a puzzle for me. I think the company's fantastic. I look at the lineup of products, they're really good. We'll get into some more of the details in this discussion. Mm -hmm. I don't know anybody who has a bad opinion of the Mazda brand. It seems to go great. And yet, you guys seem to be stuck down here in a lower rung. What's it take? I mean, how do you make more car buyers aware of what the vehicles and the brand are all about and really start growing market share?
0: Well, uh, first of all, we're capacity constrained right now globally. So, it's so if I grow market share in the U.S., I'm taken away from somebody else. So it's a delicate balance right now. And I appreciate your sentiments to Mazda, and I agree. I don't think there's many people out there that have a, a negative impression of Mazda. How we grow our business is through business quality and letting more people understand the story of Mazda, because. Quite honestly, we're not chasing the big guy. When we tried to chase the big guy in the past, we failed. And so we understand our niche. We know where we want to be. That's why we choose our segments wisely. That's why we choose our cars wisely. And to be successful in those segments, we need to tell the Mazda story beyond the product story. It needs to be the Hiroshima story. It needs to be the Active story. It needs to be the Kodo design story. It needs to be the iActive safety sense story. Whatever the deeper meaning of Mazda is beyond the cars to make that connection with the customer. And quite honestly, we need to do a better job with customer satisfaction and the customer experience. And with our retailers, we need to do a better job with our relationship with our dealers.
2: Is it fair enough to suggest, uh, Robert, that um, of the Japanese, maybe even of all automakers, M- Mazda is the most passionate uh, from top to bottom?
0: I would hope that that's the case. I mean, uh, being a company that's, that manufactures about 1.3 million cars, that sounds big, but in the grand scheme of things, that makes us a small player. And passion has got to do something for you there. And passion and thinking about doing things differently and executing differently is what we see as the, as the road to the future. As we expand our business and as we grow, we've got to get ourselves uh, on a firmer footing financially. We have to have a better our relationship with our dealers and expand the volume like John talked about to get some scale. But again, that's never scale of Toyota or Honda or Nissan. That's our own scale and doing it our own way. And passion's a big thing. I think relationship with our dealers is a good example. I think that relationship is good for 10% improvement in your business when you're a different company than Toyota and Honda and Nissan. Not that they're doing it wrong, we just wanna do it differently.
3: And the passion, Robert, is that your your cars, uh, your Mazda MX-5, the uh, Miata, is your uh, kind of your halo car, and you like to talk about in advertising how that spreads to the rest of the lineup. But uh, can passion also be kind of a double-edged sword in that that appeals to guys like us, to people like us, uh, my wife, uh, but uh, but not to the general public, and um, and that you're talking about a small niche kind of product. Can you? Can you keep can you keep surviving uh, uh, in the U.S. with the kind of volumes you're you're running right now?
0: Well, if we take it down and break it down to statistical ability to measure somebody, and we call it the um, the U.S. Mazda customer, the UMC, and that's about 24% of the car buying public. And so, John, you talked about two percent earlier. So you're two percent of the industry, 24% of the I went to Clemson, South Carolina Public School. Let's just make it easy. That's four times. So now we're 8% market share in what we kind of consider as an enthusiast target. And 8% is actually a pretty good
1: market share in today's market. Right. That's an interesting way to look at
0: it. So that's where we wanna go. Now, can we survive just on that 25%? No, but uh, people like us are the people that influence other people to to buy cars. And we don't need to influence 100% of the people that would buy an Altima. A Camry or an Accord. We just need to influence six to eight percent of those people to do it. And I don't know about you guys, but somebody in my neighborhood wants to buy a car. It's probably a little different here in Detroit, but somebody wants to buy a car, they come ask your opinion whether it's a car that that we represent in a segment or not. Uh, only just based on on who we are as people. So, yeah, I think we've got a lot of opportunity to do better.
3: And It's interesting that you mentioned the Altima and the Accord and the Camry. uh, That's a uh, segment in which that's never been your best segment. uh, Your best seller has traditionally been the Mazda 3, the the compact sedan rather than the midsize sedan. Now we've got uh, kind of a shifting buyer in the U.S. and actually worldwide where they're shifting to uh, CUVs and actually kind of going down a size. So how are you going to take advantage of that?
0: Well, it's already happened with us where... Uh, last year cx-5 outsold mazda 3 so you we see that shift but the current mazda 6 is making ground in that area the cd segment i mean that's the fallujah of the car business right it's just hmm. it's a dogfight every day <laughs> and we kind of see the segment separating now there's us and some other competitors that are able to hold the revenue and hold the line and there's and there's other competitors that are just going after market share and keeping the plants running. So we see a little balancing act going on there. Kind of deeper into the, uh, the Mazda business, if you look at our competitive set, we normally are comfortable in the 4 to 6% range of a segment. Mazda 2 is just topping out over 2%. So we, we feel like we've got more room to grow there. You're right, though. We've got, that's been our weakest segment. That's where our ability to grow should be the best. It's also the place where the market's shrinking and it's the hardest. I mean, that's making up ground in that segment is is brutal. Robert, you've
1: referenced your retailers three times already in the show. What is it that you're really focusing on with them? What's the message that you're trying to get to them and what are you hearing from them? Um,
0: customer experience is the message. And, and we've got to live that ourselves uh, in order to ask them to live it. So... Um, In our terminology, we call it CX and DX. So CX is the way we all treat the end-user customer, and DX is the way we interact with the dealer or the dealer experience. Our goal is to make the experience with Mazda and the dealer as smooth and as easy as possible, help the dealer retain people, help the dealer invest in in not only their facilities, but in their ability to keep people and invest in that customer experience. We just did a – last year we did a dealer meeting in Las Vegas – And uh, the unified message was CX, no marketing, no parts program, CX, CX, CX. And um, a lot of dealers came up afterwards and said it was refreshing. You've got a singular focus. Let's just go down the road. We've got to now have an experience that's as good as the cars we're selling. And that's that's a pretty big hurdle to overcome.
2: There's a five-letter word that is, uh, is really taking over the auto industry these days, uh, and that's trust. How is it that um, uh, we know how quickly trust can go away. Uh, how is it that you have to or can affect the positive sense of trust, both in terms of dealer-to-customer and manufacturer-to-dealer-to-customer?
0: I think uh, when you make a mistake, admit it and be transparent up front. Um, that's the first and easiest way. These these cars are very complex. I don't know that every any everybody expects everyone to be perfect every time. So when you make a mistake, just live up to it and go execute against it. Uh, treat the people with respect and, and value their time. Um, and have dialogue with them instead of communicate with them. I think that's one of the things that we've seen in the past where we... Work like hell to get a customer in a showroom and sell them a car, and then it's away you go until three years later when you're ready to sell them tires or sell them a battery or whatever. I think trust can be built more when you're having dialogue and communication with the customer when you're not trying to sell them anything when you 're just making sure that they 're in good shape, or is there anything they need to do, that you need to do to help them out, so I think that 's uh, working through it. The other thing is having a, a, a company culture that shows that the the interests or the values that you as a person match what the company does. And Drive for Good, we just finished up Drive for Good, which is our third year. And we know that Toyota and Hyundai and you name it can outspend us in a charitable cause. That's why we invest our time versus just our money. Um, So for every test drive, we have an hour of volunteer service that Mazda, or one of our Mazda dealers, gives back to the community. So um, that's a a little different spin on, on what we try to do to say we're trustworthy. Certainly we make mistakes. We've made mistakes in the past. Bad transmissions in certain cars and um, uh, misquoted RX-8 horsepower. I mean, those are two that I remember. And you just got to overcome it. Volkswagen right now has got a, a big opportunity to overcome a challenge that they have in the emissions world with the diesel. And, and nobody wants to see a competitor go through what they're going through. But it's, uh, they'll be back. I, got, I trust that they'll be back.
3: <laughs> but you've held back your diesel uh, from U.S. Uh, import. Uh, perhaps because you couldn't figure out how a company like Volkswagen was doing. You could talk about that a little bit. What, is there a future uh, Mazda,
0: deal, uh, Mazda diesel in the U.S.? Yeah, Todd, we think there is. Uh, we still plan to bring the diesel to the U.S. for the Mazda 6. Um, we quite honestly went through the testing procedure and the tuning procedure, and we got our car to pass the emissions regulation, but it didn't feel like a Mazda. And we knew that uh, what we need to go forth with, with our products need to be consistent. So if we sacrifice and dummied down the performance and the driving characteristics of that car, would it give us license to do it on every car? And that's a slippery slope for us because, as we talked about earlier, we got to be different from the competition. So we can't out Camry Camry and can't out a Accord. A so our plan is to still to do it. Um, I've announced three times what the timing is going to be,
2: and all three have been wrong. So
3: I brought it up. Well, thought, <laughs> better a chance to go for number
2: four. You know? No, no, no. Uh, I mean, uh, better to underpromise and overdeliver right. than True. the other way around. True. And the great thing about Robert is, and you talk about performance. I don't know if you know this. Recently, um, uh, th- he and teammates comprised of folks in Mazda as well as some dealers raced at a, an event. Tell us about that, will you? So we raced at the 25 Hours of Thunder Hill, which
0: is an event that's always the first weekend in December in Northern California, put on by NASA. And we invited, well, we, we built the first four production Global MX-5 Cup cars, the 2016 Miata race car, and took some dealers and factory guys and a bunch of volunteers and took them and, and basically had a 25-hour public test and the cars ran basically three seasons in a day. Um, we had three some race seasons. Three race seasons in a day. We had about 7,000 total miles on the car. We had some transmission problems with two cars, so we know that's the Achilles heel But that's of the why car. you go
1: racing, to find that's, these
0: That's things. why we race them. And it was great. I mean, the relationship, we talked about dealer relationships and un- having a good connection with your dealers. Those dealers are, are truly committed Mazda dealers. And... You know, whatever your hobby is, you can build relationships with people, but being in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. in the rain and the cold, <laughs> standing around uh, in your Nomex is a, is a different way to build a relationship. We're proud of it. It's not a golf course. I don't
2: know. But, but you, <laughs> had, you, yes. you, had some, you had some good hardware to show for
0: it, didn't you? Yeah, uh, we, we did well. We, uh, we overclassed the cars because we didn't want to beat any other Mazda competitors. Uh, All four cars did finish. They crossed the line. Uh, My own personal race team won its class for the second year in a row. Mm. And uh, we're pretty proud of that. We led from green flag to checkered. And it was a a long but good. That's one of those things at 3 o'clock in the morning, Dutch, you're cussing while you're there. But then at 2 in the afternoon when you're on your way to the airport, you're talking about next year. So it's (laughs) it's crazy. Hey, let's go back to the diesel engine a minute because...
1: Prior to the Volkswagen scandal going public, were you guys standing around scratching your head, going, "How the heck are they meeting these emission standards?"
0: I, I don't. I can't speak for everyone. I just, um, their driving characteristics of their cars are quite a bit different than ours. And quite honestly, when we drove the tuned Mazda six to meet the emission standard, it felt a lot like a Passat, which really wasn't acceptable to us. So I guess I would never really made that connection. Uh, certainly the day after their announcement we felt a lot smarter <laughs> but uh, it was uh, it's not good for anybody in the industry no, though and, and, and you know, we, we make light of it here but it's a, it's a tough thing. Mm-hmm.
3: If I could go back to the Miatas you were just talking about the car, the ND Miata will be on the market just about a year when the Fiat product uh, which is a good thing for Mazda because now Mazda separated from Ford has a deal to uh, kind of extend that platform but what does that mean for you in the U.S., uh, at your Mazda dealers, where typically that type of car drops off in sales after the first year anyway?
0: Well, I haven't seen any of the details on their pricing or packaging, uh, what they're going to do. But they haven't announced yet yet. We, we've, we've had some dealers express concern, but I always remind them, without the partnership with Fiat, there would be no car. You know, think about it. In 2009, when that car had to start being developed, the end was at 70 per dollar. Mm-hmm. The industry was, I don't know, what, 15.8 or something, and the sports car business was non existent. Well, without a partner, you don't have it. Our expectation in the U.S. is that it'll, it'll only have a positive impact. I think some of our colleagues in Europe are a little bit more concerned where Fiat has a much bigger presence. Uh-huh.
1: You've talked about passion. Uh, we haven't gotten into the details, but sky Active. I, I love the strategy that Mazda's using, going through everything in the car, making it as strong and lightweight as possible. Your steering is more like BMW than anything from, say, Honda Accord or Nissan, or uh, Honda, Toyota, or Nissan. More than BMWs these days. And, and even more than BMWs. In fact, some people call Mazda the BMW of Japan. Uh, you've even got a tagline now that says, driving matters. But the hottest topic in the business these days, or one of the hottest topics, of course, is autonomous cars. What's Mazda's philosophy when it comes to autonomy?
0: Well, if you take a look at the autonomy landscape, right, there's everything from smart city braking to radar cruise control to fully autonomous. You know, the Google principle of uh, just get in and let the thing drive you. I think we're somewhere definitely in the middle. We want to allow the driver to have as much control and have as much enjoyment of the car as possible and use technology to avoid uh, accidents and intervene when we think the driver is either not capable of, of controlling or not paying attention or unaware. So that's kind of the spectrum that we're at, but we're really looking at the ability of the premium makes to take technology and bring it downstream. It's been something that we've been doing quite a long time. Remember the Mazda 3? I remember when guys in this town thought we were crazy for putting leather interior in Mazda 3 as an option. You know, and no other compact car had it. And uh, now we all have it. So we'll watch that technology and bring it down. I don't see us in the full autonomous kind of landscape because we driving our cars we've talked a lot about passion but it's as much about the journey as it is the destination and enjoying it because we feel strongly that you should be able to enjoy it you should be able to interface with a machine you know we talk about Thai, which is the oneness between horse and rider in japan about miata and every car should have that and there's a lot of people that don't care about that but we're obviously passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Well,
3: speaking of premium features, you showed last year at the LA Auto Show the new CX-9, and um, and that's been a long time coming, obviously. The car had a very nice interior, um, very premium-like interior, and that's in a segment where you could probably, even without having a premium or a luxury nameplate, uh, run from the thirty to $50,000 range, depending on the equipment. So can you talk a little bit about that strategy, and, and will you be applying that to other Mazda models are you are you looking to move it up market a little bit more
0: yeah we CX-9 is going to come out uh, a little bit later in the spring and as you said it has a very premium interior and when we did the research on the consumer that's the target for that car they have a balance between self-indulgence and the duties of a 3 year SUV, whether it's taking kids to school or whatever. So we're trying, right now, the, the segment seems to be a little bit heavy on the duty side and a little less self-indulgence. So we're just trying to balance that out. And that interior is designed around doing that. So we've actually, lessons we've learned with CX-5 and Mazda 6 and Mazda 3 have led us there because the, the GT, which is our highest trim level, performance in those cars is very high much higher than forecasted so it really goes to show if you price it content it and give the customers what they're looking for they're willing to spend their money on it right that's the best vote that you can ever get is voting with dollars so that strategy is going into cx9 and it's getting a what we haven't decided the final name on it but what we're calling internally is a signature edition which is napa leather uh real wood A cool story there made from a guitar maker and sourced from a guitar maker in Japan, Uh uh, real aluminum. So it's a different place for us to go and it's a different way to indulge the customers. And you're right, that 30 to $50,000 range is is wide open for either premium makes or non-premium makes. And being in that white space in the middle, we see it as a good fit for us.
1: Very early in the show, you mentioned that one of the reasons you can't grow sales that much more in the U.S. market is your the company is capacity constrained mm-hmm. on a global basis. What's the company going to do about that? It would seem now's an appropriate time to look at adding some more capacity.
0: Well, that that big decision is uh, uh, left to the big guys back in Japan, but. Um, I really was interested in Kogai-san, our president back in Japan had a philosophy and he's a manufacturing specialist, that's his background, talked about improving every worker by uh, a tenth of a second and a tenth of a second with every factory worker and all the assembly process. Would add 100,000 in three years, would add 100,000 vehicles of capacity with no brick and mortar. <laughs> My lord. And I mean, and it's uh, a <laughs> you just think about it and you go, wow, you know, um, to be able to come with that level of detail and understand how you can do it. So that's obviously the first step. <clears throat> Ourselves and our dealers here in the U.S. have to do better of turning the cars, and that's a shared responsibility. I've got to do a better job of having our team have the right specs on the car, have the right colors, have the right trims, have two-wheel drive, four-wheel drive engines, whatever, narrow it down and have it at the right place. The dealers need to do a better job of figuring out what cars they sell and turn it. And we've got a living example. that Tom and the guys over at Subaru are doing a great job with that right now. They're turning the cars, and the success is easy to see. Uh, we're doing a good job with CX-3, MX-5, and CX-5. We need to do a better job with mazda 6 and mazda 3 and our ability to turn the inventory month in and month out you know we're in the old turn you earn thing so <laughs> it's not only a dealer nightmare it's a distributor nightmare too
3: so is Subaru kind of a little bit of a model or a target for you in that
0: regard in that regard yeah they do a lot of things right and uh have continually done a lot of things right and i think uh gotten the industry's attention uh, doing a great job over there. It really shows that consistency is the key. You know, get your plan, execute against it, and just keep driving it home, and And uh, they've done a great job.
3: And getting back to a product like the CX-9, so I, one reason automakers love selling more CUVs and sedans is that their prices are generally higher. Um, but So if you take, say, a, a CX-9 uh, compared with the Mazda 6, um, is... Is there added margin at the low end of the CX-9, or do you have to get into the more heavily um, equipped models before you see uh, any margin increase? Yeah,
0: there's there's added margin from the beginning and all the way through. Um, we did a study once, and this goes back years, but uh, Honda's a great example because they have Odyssey and Pilot. And we did a review, and if you take a look at those two cars, the prior generation cars, They are almost exactly the same, right? The two-wheel drive pilot and an Odyssey, eight passengers, same motor, same transmission, same suspension. The only difference was the body configuration, and at that time, it was a $1,600 difference in average revenue, just pilot above an Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the original CX-9 study that we looked at because we had an MPV. We're trying to decide to build another MPV or build a crossover. So that showed the perception of the consumer, the value that they have in a crossover. So apples to apples, the same amount of steel, the same amount of glass, same seating configuration, same safety,
2: same powertrain, more money. One last CUV question, for me at least, is we're seeing some companies come out with more sporty CUVs. Uh, uh, Scion showed something at... um, I forget the name at the at the LA show, but it's it's rakish. Is that the direction that we're going to be seeing more and more of these kinds of crossover utilities?
0: It's a little bit of a balance. I think we've got to keep the utility of enough of it. I remember in in your publication when one of the Suzukis came out, it said it's neither sport nor utility. <laughs> But uh, that but
2: rear. <laughs> <topping or> <laughs> <a> <laughs> exactly. <wax. laughs>
0: yeah. Um, it was that XC70 or something, but uh, it was. Uh, it, it, the rear seat headroom is really the killer on that. Yeah. You know, we really struggled with that on CX9 of having command seating position, which means tearing first, second, and third row seats so the third row passengers can see out of. The one thing I noticed is uh, if you don't balance the amount of sunlight that can come in in that third row it can really make it an uncomfortable place to be so getting the head down and and blocking your side view is is pretty important in that as a driver
2: i've never really cared about what that meant (laughs) for my passengers but i guess that's just me right (laughs) real good
1: with that i think this is probably a good place to wrap it up very interesting to see what all is happening at mazda Uh, uh, you know, Tom Dahl sat in that very chair earlier this year and told us he thought he could sell 250,000 more Subarus this year if he only had the capacity. Just a thought, just a, nice. something I'm, I'm sharing. But Robert Davis, uh, Senior Vice President of Operations, Mazda North America, thanks so much for coming on the show today.
0: Thank you, John. Thank you, guys.
1: Dutch Mandel, Todd Lassa, I want to thank you too as well. Very good discussion here. And, of course, I want to thank all of you for having tuned in.